0: Hi, you're listening to Laws Flaws, the official podcast of the New York University Journal of Legislation and Public Policy. My name is Patrick DeRocher, and I'm an outgoing editor from volume 23 of the journal. The conversation that you're about to hear with Representative David Price of North Carolina was recorded back in March of 2021, shortly before the US House of Representatives passed the For the People Act, or HR1. While this bill failed to progress through the Senate, We still think this is an interesting and important conversation, as states are faced with the issue of redistricting in the wake of the decennial census, and the questions that undergird our democracy have to be addressed on a daily basis. We hope you enjoy listening to this conversation as much as we enjoyed recording it, and thank you for listening. So, uh, first, I'd like to thank you for taking time out of your schedule to join us today. Um, would would love to just sort of at, at the start get a get a sense of of what you think is you're most proud of in H.R. one, uh, either in terms of the content, what it's looking to do, or in terms of the process and the history behind that bill.
1: Well, the process and the history is a matter of some uh, pride for for me because uh, in uh, 2017. I and others working with me came up with the idea of a, of a, of a comprehensive uh, bill. We called it the We the People Act. It's now the For the People Act, but otherwise it's a very similar concept where uh, where we put the different reform elements, everything from uh, redistricting reform to, uh, to very specific measures to uh, essentially block attempts at voter suppression, uh, all the way to uh, requirements for public financing. You know, resuming public financing for presidential elections and instituting uh, matching small contributions uh, type financing for congressional elections, all, all that under one umbrella. That 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 tells us, I think, putting it together like that tells us that these um, reform elements are uh, interrelated, but it also uh, served notice that they're uh, they're all overdue way, way overdue. And So uh, I thought it was highly appropriate that uh, that that. Um, An umbrella bill with some some expanded elements became H.R. One when Democrats took uh, leadership, my individual pieces of the of the puzzle include uh, include presidential public financing, modernizing and and resuming, you know, the public financing of uh, of presidential campaigns, as well as a number of items designed to uh, improve disclosure. I'm the uh, I'm the author of the uh, Stand by your ad provisions from uh, from way back, where candidates have to appear in their own ads and and take ownership, say that they approve the message, and we uh, we think those ought to be applied to paid uh, internet ads, to robocalls, and to other uh, kinds of. Uh, uh, and there needs to be a a, a disclosure, a meaningful disclosure, who who paid for Super PAC ads. Uh, and what I uh, am proposing is that the uh, top five donors of the organization be flashed on the screen as the equivalent of um, of stand by your ad for an individual uh, candidate. So we have um, some items that are relatively targeted like that. We have some big aspirational items like congressional public financing. Uh, I'm um, happy to be uh, the ones who, who's pushed a lot of these things for a long time. But this is a, a good collaborative effort. It's a uh, a product of the of the democratic caucus many elements of the caucus and uh, so and it's hr1 it's uh, it it recognize the way we've handled it recognizes that this is foundational to uh, our democracy and to anything else we want to do
0: well that that that's great thank you um how has how does hr1 and how does the sort of process you've just described uh, how to interact with your work on the democracy reform task force, uh, in, in that sort of in this sort of same time period, and what what policy victories have you managed to get through? I mean, it sounds like HR one is is perhaps an example of that, but uh, I would be interested in hearing more about that, and maybe some things you wish you could have accomplished, or that the task force could have accomplished.
1: Well, when you look at the precursors of uh, of HR one, I think the uh, template that we laid down in uh, in 2017 is is part of that, but I also think the ongoing work of the democracy reform task force is part of that. So for for years now, we've uh, been uh, been considering uh, various reform proposals and how they might be uh, pushed and how they might be assembled. And I, I must say, it's been tough going. You know, the uh, the days of um, Bipartisanship, a la Shays' in or McCain-Feingold. I, I, I mean, uh, I remember getting, uh, I remember getting the stand by your ad provisions in the McCain-Feingold bill, and uh, that was, uh, you know, I had to work on it, but it was uh, certainly wasn't partisan. I mean, there's plenty of bipartisan buy-in for a lot of reform uh, proposals, but that's just not the case anymore. I mean, the last time, I, I you know, the presidential. Uh, public financing for presidential elections was a uh, a bipartisan effort post Watergate, uh, the the president who arguably benefited most from it was Ronald Reagan. Uh, And yet, uh, when we try to modernize and renew the presidential public financing, uh, we're lucky if we get a single Republican vote these days and uh, so the reform agenda, especially under Republican leadership, we were um, our democracy reform task force was uh, was operating as a as a as a purely minority operation, with the limitations that implies. Having said that, we did a lot of good work, and um, a lot of that work came to fruition when we came into leadership and put HR one together. And enhancing democracy <coughs> has taken an un, unexpected turn with uh, with this. Uh, This uh, big lie that uh, Donald Trump perpetrated after the election, and and what I don't know what a lot of Republicans probably thought they would humor him along, and at some point he would uh, acknowledge the result of the election. Well, it didn't happen. Didn't happen. I mean, turns out the guy really intended to uh, to stay in power or to try to do so and to overturn the results of a legitimate election. And so uh, I don't think um, anybody was ready for that, and the. uh, There's some of the there's some of the Trump era problems that are reflected in the work of our task force. uh, You know, before the insurrection and when when HR1 was formulated the first time, uh, there's some there's some provisions in there having to do with uh, foreign interference, for example, uh, and and requiring requiring campaigns to uh, to report that sort of thing and 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 attempting to uh, prevent foreign interference. It, It it also became clear. And uh, I, do, I do write about this in in my book because it's happened since uh, we first did HR uh, one. It also became clear that uh, COVID related concerns were going to uh, you know it wasn't like it wasn't going to be. Unfortunately, that we on a bipartisan basis tried to facilitate people voting during COVID. Quite the contrary, that Wisconsin that terrible Wisconsin experience and a really. Tone-deaf Supreme Court decision in the midst of that, you know, the Republicans were perfectly willing to uh, to shut down voting, uh, and and to and to fail to expand voting to accommodate people who wanted to avoid, uh, uh, you know, ex- uh, the exposure to uh, to the virus. So uh, um, the and and Donald Trump, of course, latched onto this, trying to make a uh, make a thing of. Uh, of voting by mail, as though that was somehow uh, very suspicious, and uh, and he, uh, he the rest is history. I guess I mean the uh, a lot of the a lot of the misinformation and and outright lies about the uh, twenty twenty election had had its origin in uh, in in some of those uh, COVID related disputes involving the Postal Service. All the rest, it was just a mess. So you might say, what does HR1 need to look like now to reflect all this? And I'm I'm not um, I'm not suggesting that it, it can necessarily reflect all of the reform challenges we, we face. But um, I, I think the basics of HR1 are more urgent now than ever. Certainly nothing's reduced our concern about partisan gerrymandering and the, the kind of effects that produces. Nothing's uh, reduced our concerns about unaccountable big money in uh, in politics and nothing as far as I'm concerned has reduced the attractiveness of uh, moving to a system of uh, public financing of, of elections where um, where we have um, we encourage small contributions and widespread participation but we match those in a way that uh, we we uh, we uh, have a kind of hybrid scheme that uh, where the public financing it makes a huge difference, I think, in terms of the way campaigns operate and whom they answer to. Uh,
0: changing, pivoting a little bit here, um, you're, I know that you're also the chairman of the House Democracy Partnership, um, which I, as, as I understand it, is a bipartisan group of members of Congress uh, that works with partner countries, legislatures uh, who join voluntarily in building democratic norms and institutions. Uh, can you tell us more about the HDP and the work that you do and how that uh, compares with and relates to your work and your lessons from the Democracy Reform Task Force?
1: Sure. Um, well, the House Democracy Partnership has, um, has somewhat different historical uh, origins. Um, it um, it goes back uh, this this kind of effort member to member, staff to staff, this kind of effort to uh, to uh, focus as colleagues on uh, parliamentary effectiveness and to work with the parliaments in emerging democracy situations to uh, increase the uh, effectiveness of their institutions. Uh, this uh, dates back to uh, Eastern and Central Europe in the early 90s when communism was falling and the Soviet Union was dissolving and uh, all kinds of countries had to uh, take showcase parliaments and actually uh, make them work. And um, a colleague of mine, Martin Frost of Texas, had a had a had a great idea back then that, uh, you know, we should reach out in quite direct ways, member to member, staff to staff to help uh, bring these parliaments along. And the effort back then focused very heavily on uh, on research capacity, libraries, uh, it. um, But uh, our staff went over for weeks at a time to work and getting those uh, parliaments up and running. And we uh, made we made a lot of visits ourselves and that that and that, that left, I was a very junior member at that point, And that left a very lasting impression on me. Newt Gingrich let the whole thing expire when he came in in the mid 90s. So I tried for years to get this back up and running and finally succeeded 15 years ago with the help of Republican Speaker Dennis Astor and uh, and he appointed David Dreyer to chair of the commission. then I became chairman when Democrats uh, took over in uh, in 7. And we've maintained a bipartisan effort ever since. We still have a a lot of focus on Eastern and Central Europe. We work, for example, in Macedonia, Kosovo, Georgia, Armenia, Ukraine uh, but we also uh, have, um, a worldwide focus with countries like indonesia and kenya and uh, peru uh, countries that uh, are um, are yes they're struggling but they but they've also shown a real commitment and a real capacity to to uh, become functioning representative democracies and we we think that they and we have a mutual stake in making sure that that works we uh, we have a mantra that uh, uh, yes, democracy is about free and fair elections. But what happens between elections is is really maybe what will matter in a lot of cases. And in in that uh, period between elections, that's when representative institutions either work or they don't. And um, the the result of, of their efforts make a huge um, difference for whether democracy takes hold. You
0: know, so I think it's interesting that you're talking about what happens in between um in between elections is being important for democracy and, and of course we as a country have just entered into a, a new period in between elections uh with you know a, a new congress democratic control of the political branches um and a you know new power dynamics associated with that do you see any through lines between uh your, your work with the with the hdp and with the task force and how that sort of is informing um informing your work in this Congress even apart from the the legislature the excuse me the legislation itself
1: well uh, yes I mean there's there's certainly a a, a strong relationship between uh, our reform agenda and and that that other countries might want to uh, undertake um, it's it's also true that uh, we uh, we've we just had demonstrated with the insurrection here and the attempt to uh, avoid in the case of Donald Trump and some of his acolytes to avoid a peaceful transfer of power. We've uh, also had illustrated that we we share a lot more with some of these uh, struggling uh, new democracies than we might have understood. I, I would say, though, uh, that, that we've always had a sense of uh, Democracy as a work in progress. Anybody who knows the history of this country knows that democracy, first of all, has never been perfect, and secondly, it was highly flawed, highly compromised in our um, early history. And so uh, we've we've gradually realized more and more of the ideals of democracy. But it's um, it's the work of each new generation. I don't think any of us uh, expected the kind of setback we've just had with this uh, attempted insurrection. But um, certainly, the point still holds that democracy is is always a work in progress, and our attitude with these developing countries has always been that uh, we're we're sharing an aspiration to uh, perfect democracy. We we've certainly been, um, I hope, appropriately humble about our own democracy's achievements. We're we're proud in many ways, of course, of having an institution that has uh, survived and evolved for 225 years. But we understand very well its flaws, and um, we also understand that our particular constitutional arrangement isn't necessarily for export. We've never claimed that. So, so we've always had an attitude with our international partners that, uh, that this is a shared journey and one in which we learn from each other. And I just think that the events of the last couple of months have, um, have underscored that for us.
0: So turning to your book, um, there's a new edition of it. Uh, the book is called The Congressional Experience. Uh, that was a new edition that was released at the end of last year. Um, I think we'd be interested in learning a little more about uh, how you started the project of writing this particular book, uh, how has it evolved over time, and um, what are some of the sort of lessons you think you've, you've learned and put into this book by writing it?
1: Well, the book has been through four editions. and uh... <laughs> I feel like my my congressional career has been through at least four editions. So uh, the, uh, the the uh, content of the book and even the character of the book has uh, has changed. Although it still has some of those early elements. The, the way I started it, a political scientist friend of mine who was also a series editor for a publisher um, asked me what I would think about. Um, Writing up my early experiences. What was it was like to run for Congress as a new member in a in a swing district. What was it like to break into the institution here and try to pass a few bills? And you know, you know, just what was it like to get going at, in the electoral arena and in Congress? And uh, I thought I really don't need that, but um, I did it nonetheless, partly out of friendship. I did a book chapter first, and then I did turn that into the uh, first edition of the book in. Uh, I think it must've been 92 after I'd been here, um, uh, three terms. And, uh, I, um uh, I, I got more out of the experience than I thought I would. I, it, it, it was, uh, it was, a a, a strain, you know, trying to do everything, but, but at the same time, it, uh, it is satisfying to put down your, uh, your view of things and to have a, have a platform for, uh, and, and the, the book often has led to, uh, you know, to encounters in the classroom and 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 beyond to uh, talk about what's what's in the book and my interpretation of uh, American politics during my term of service. Uh, so that's how it started, out of uh, the urgings of a, of a friend and and me gradually warming up to the idea. Um, so I did uh, I did the first edition, then I lost an election and made a comeback, and that became the. Uh, I guess the main theme of the second edition, and uh, and so on. So this is edition four. It's been fifteen years. A lot has happened. Uh, I've gotten into the ranks of senior leadership in the House, partly with uh, uh, a major appropriations a subcommittee chairmanship, uh, transportation and housing, and uh, and the House Democracy Partnership, which we've been uh, discussing uh, the, these last fifteen years. There have been three turnovers in House leadership. We've uh, had the Obama and the Trump presidencies, and we've had an ongoing process of uh, polarization and, and I would say centralization of, of leadership. And those two are related to each other in the House of, um, of Representatives. So um, I subtitled this fourth edition "An Institution Transformed. And that's meant to communicate that, um, uh, y- yes, it's, uh, and I also picked the book cover with storm clouds over the Capitol. To, to indicate that this is a this is a perilous time. I, uh, I, I treasure my congressional experience and appreciate my constituents sending me here uh, almost every time, almost every election. but I, um, I also uh, have have some apprehensions about the directions that the Congress is taking and the country is taking and the poli- our politics is taking. I mean that's um, that's a, a major um, theme of the book.
0: You you mentioned there uh, the centralization that's been happening in uh, the way Congress operates, and I, I think that a lot of people are aware of the polarization. You can very much see that happening in real time, but I'm not sure um, a lot of folks necessarily think about the, the, the centralization as well. Um, I mean, it, I think we'd be interested in hearing some more about that um, and how you think it has impacted uh, the role of rank and file members uh, as you've been uh, as how that's changed over your time in office um, and i'd also be interested in uh, any other you know major changes you've seen in particular uh, changes that our listeners might not be as familiar with
1: well let me concentrate on the centralization because i think it is a a, a central phenomenon of, of what's going on you know and often the journalists treat this as a as a function of uh, uh, strong leaders people who came on uh, and um, wanted to uh, shake up the institution and run it more uh, more centrally and in their view probably more efficiently and those discussions tend to focus on newt gingrich and the and the major changes that he uh, he undertook when he came in as a speaker after the 1994 um, um, wave election and um, there's some truth in that i mean i was here a few years before that, and I saw how much the Republican politics shifted when when Gingrich first got into power, when he displaced the rather amiable and moderate uh, Bob Michael and became uh, I think Republican Whip was his first position. But anyway, it changed things once Gingrich came on the scene, and certainly when he became speaker. Uh, however, I think uh, a little broader view would suggest that uh, this uh, didn't happen in a vacuum that uh, in fact, there had been some, uh, there had been some trends towards centralization in both parties for a, a number of years uh, before that. On the Democratic side, uh, there was uh, what some political scientists call uh, a, a responsible party impulse, which uh, tried to uh, rein in these Southern conservative committee chairs and, and subject the Democratic leadership of the House to more more discipline and more of a policy focus and and honestly a more progressive uh, approach to national politics uh, rooted in civil rights and other other issues and and so uh, there there was a centralization that uh, sought to uh, uh, downplay some of these uh, reactionary committee chairs at the fiefdoms that they held and and to and to make the uh, the house more responsive to uh, policy needs and uh then along with that came came more uh, more, uh, I'd say, more partisanship, more polarization. Both parties became uh, more homogeneous internally, but but further apart uh, and uh, from each other. And uh, and so, uh, and and of course, Gingrich fomented that. But it it wasn't just top down; it was also happening in the country, and still happens in the country where uh, where the party bases are more more divided than any of us can ever remember before so um, just the 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 basic fact is that that polarized a polarized institution and and a a more conflict-ridden institution requires more centralized leadership you you know so there's 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 a a reason that most members understand that um, this can't be the uh, committee-centric less partisan institution that it used to be many of us wish it could be and and to your point uh, individual members often thrive in in a in a less uh, centralized institution, where the committees uh, really uh, do do most of the work, and where uh, people work across party lines. I started out here in uh, the last stages of that kind of uh, institution, and I I had some successes in a kind of a bill becomes a law fashion. I, I got some bills through on, on the basis that I'm describing, working through the committee process. But that has become more more difficult, and so uh, it's not just the leaders like Newt Gingrich or Nancy Pelosi or anybody else come in and and want to be uh, want to be centralizing figures uh, to some extent. Their institutional setting uh, demands that of them. I mean, there's always a, an interaction, I think, between the kind of uh, management challenges and leadership challenges that um, a leader faces, and
0: that leader's own impulses. Um, I think that's really interesting. Thank you. Um, do you see a path back toward uh, more of a decentralized or a committee focused uh, legislative process or to, you know, in some ways, you move into a, a different phase of how Congress operates? Do you think there's a way that we can get there? And if so, what do you think that might look like?
1: Well, it's a very good question. And it's something that it's a question that kind of hovers over the book. I don't uh, I don't really answer the question, but I think it's uh, clear to anybody who reads it that I would uh, I would like to see, if not a total return to what we call regular order, at least a, a return to a, uh, a less uh, leadership driven situation where uh, where the committees do real work and where uh, there, there is some um, some possibility for for bipartisan cooperation within the committee setting i'm i'm on the appropriations committee which is the committee where to the extent bipartisan cooperation still exists we would we would be probably the best example of that uh, i think the institution of the country would be well served by uh by a uh, a return to that this is a f- strange time to ask that question though because uh we're in the middle of a of a pandemic and if you uh if you had to uh, analyze historically, and I do this somewhat in the book, if you had to analyze historically what's driven us to this more centralized uh, model of organization, it would be uh, the polarizing uh, trends, the, the greater conflict, the uh, greater ideological diversion, especially the Republican uh, uh Tendency toward more extreme ideology. All the rest has made the place harder to manage, and has required centralized to leadership. and And then the other factor would be crises, would be crises. Some of them man made, like uh, near government shutdowns. You know, you know, failure to reach agreement, and then all of a sudden the leadership has to swoop in and do a deal. That uh, that is centralizing in its effects. Appropriations committees become pretty well irrelevant at that point when you have to do a, a budget deal to avert a government shutdown. And when you need to to address a natural disaster, let alone a pandemic, uh, this is required. Uh, this requires a, a mobilization across the entire chamber, and, and that too is centralizing. So, uh, so this is a hard time to think about uh, what it might mean to return to a to a more uh, a more decentralized uh, institution. But I uh, I, I do hope to some degree hope and believe that to some degree that's uh, that's possible and and there is one more thing i suppose i should say and I, I stress this in the book that as far as this has gone and it's gone pretty far we're still not a parliament where there's still there still is a there still is a difference uh, we, uh norm ornstein in in his latest book says well we're developing parliamentary style parties but we don't have a Parliament uh, restyle constitution, and so, you know, a constitution that has checks and balances and requires cooperation and often produces divided government. You know, you you simply can't have uh, totally um, polarized parties in that kind of situation and govern. You've got to have a capacity to uh, to come together and to do uh, to do compromise. And so, um, the uh, the we're not uh, totally. Uh, lost cause in terms of of that kind of operation and we can't be because our constitution uh, we're not going to change anytime soon the way that the constitution uh, structures our uh, our our government so uh, for all sorts of reasons um i i I would say the congress is still a place where members like myself you have to work harder at it but it's still a place where members like myself can carve out a, a policy area and go to work on it uh like we did with house democracy partnership you know that wasn't because I was on this or that committee, or because I was in a leadership roles. Because I cared about it and did it, and and members can still do that here. But I'd I'd like to see an institution where more of that is encouraged, and, and the people don't just come here with a D or an R on their shirt and consider themselves uh, partisan warriors, but where they uh, consider themselves legislators and uh, and and put their uh, partisan loyalties in a, in a. Yeah, still important, but not just a, a role that dominates everything else.
0: Would you say that the centralization uh, that has occurred over the past several decades ha- has that had an impact on the sort of person who uh, runs for Congress, who wants to be a member of the body, uh, or who wants to be in a leadership role? Um, do you see sort of a connection there?
1: Yes, I do. Although it's uh, it's anecdotal, and I, 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 this is the sort of thing that uh, students of the Congress really should look at the uh, the effects of these changes on on uh, who's deciding to run for Congress in the first place. I uh, we, we still got a lot of high quality members who and, and and in fact these days members have to balance. Uh, a lot more roles than uh, than was true when I first came here. You know, you you do have to be adept on social media. You can't just decide you're going to come here and be a, a classic workhorse. And, you know, do your committee work and not worry about interpreting what you're doing. No, no way. You're going to have to uh, also be a show horse in the sense of interpreting and and trying to rile up uh, the troops occasionally and you know uh, not assuming that your good works to speak for themselves. And and of course, social media offers all kinds of new possibilities in that regard, although it also offers some temptations, I think, to members who might just live on social media and uh, and not really pay much attention to the institution or to their role in it. So there's some some, uh, interesting questions about uh, what people uh, are thinking when they run for Congress and what they set out to do once they get here. Uh, I can tell you, it is a still a place where investing in the institution and your role in it makes uh, makes a lot of sense. If you want to make a difference, if you're just using a seat in Congress as a platform to, uh, you, you know, for your for your um, for your social media efforts or, or as a stepping stone to something else, maybe maybe that's uh, maybe that's different. But um, this institution really will suffer if most members are are doing only that. There, there, needs to be a critical mass of members who care about being here, who want to make good policy, and who want to do what it takes to learn the ropes and operate effectively.
0: So, so you're talking a lot about um, sort of the, the different roles that, that members of Congress have to play, in particular um, with you know, the rise of some of these new technologies in these new stru- in these updated structures. Um, and I think we'd be interested in knowing, you know, based on all of your experience, how how do you think um, members should be balancing their individual judgment? Do you have sort of advice you would give to folks who are trying to make that balance? Or I'm, I'm just you know, c- certainly it seems like there's something to be drawn from both the show horse and the workhorse model. Um, and I'd be interested in sort of what you would uh, recommend as, as ways to balance that and as ways to encourage that balance.
1: Well, the first uh... The first requirement, I think, is that you that you realize that life in this institution is, uh, in so many ways, a balancing act, and that there are, um, you know, we all have our strengths and weaknesses. But we uh, we 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 are going to um, we're going to serve our districts and our country less well if we don't um, if we don't strike some of those balances. I'll just name a couple. One is the one you're alluding to, show horse and work horse. So uh, that's I wouldn't say that's a phony distinction. It's it's a real distinction, but it's it's less uh, than it used to be when when Sam Rayburn first said he certainly preferred the workhorses, because we all now live in an environment where we have to uh, we have to make sure that we are interpreting what we're doing and that we're getting people excited about it, and uh, so so uh, it, the the trick is uh, not to go one direction or the other totally, but to balance those those roles. And I'd say I'd say the same thing about one's uh, one's national and local orientation. You know the uh, the, uh, the the dangers of going Washington totally or going local totally. Uh, I think those are pretty familiar. A lot of people have commented that about that over the years, but it, and it's still that way. You can't. Uh, you 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 can't just uh, come up here and get excited about national issues and about your national profile and forget the folks back home uh, nor should you just go back home and concentrate on on being a local figure and uh, and and letting um, you know n- neglecting any effort to make an impact here you need to do both and if you aren't willing to do both then you really shouldn't be here i mean the 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 job is defined by that kind of dual existence and And I think good service here requires that.
0: All right. So thank you very much for all this. Uh, We're running a little short on time. So just one question to uh, wrap it up for our listeners. Um, You know, certainly it's a challenging, it's a trying time in American history and Congress's history as, as as you've talked about. What gives you reason to hope, reason to be optimistic about the future of the institution and of, the country
1: well there too this is an interesting time to ask that question um, because uh, we've had a real wake-up call and, and any any tendency that i or anybody else had to uh to to kind of take a textbook view of, of checks and balances and to assume that they were self-enforcing uh, and that uh power could not be uh seized and abused by any uh any one player or any one branch of government uh you know we've had a we've had a, a a glimpse as to how that might occur in our country even if we thought we were uh, well insulated uh, ha- having said that our constitution is still a remarkable document the uh, the 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 uh, vitality of our democracy i think is um, is, is is impressive uh, in this latest um, effort by donald trump to play the uh, play the autocrat you know, you had uh, election officials all over the country, including many uh, Republican elected officials who who did their duty, counted the votes, recounted the votes, certified the votes, did what um, they had to do and should do under the rule of law. You had the, the judicial system uh, from um, the Supreme Court that Donald Trump thought he had uh, had, had kind of brought into his orbit uh, all the way down to, to courts all over the land, the, the court system held, held, it held, you have to say that. I mean, I, I think it was 60 out of 60 cases. And, uh, and the, uh, the Congress here where we're sitting, um, you know, it was overrun and invaded, but uh, uh, there too, the Capitol was cleared, it was secured. And later that very same day, we were back in our seats, uh, certifying the electoral votes. So um, we, we've had a Closer call than we could have imagined, but I do think uh, the the institutions and and norms and values of democracy have uh, have held. And now the challenge going forward is to uh, how to reinforce that. Uh, and I uh, I do think a lot of my Republican colleagues who up until the end were refusing those electoral votes. I uh, I have trouble with that. I think there there does need to be some reckoning that. Uh, People need to tell the truth. They need to do their constitutional duty, and uh, and there needs to be accountability uh, before we can before we can move forward. We can't just uh, act as though nothing has happened. And of course, that's what the impeachment uh, was about. But we're now in a new administration. We're facing lots of challenges coming out of this pandemic, and hopefully, uh, uh, recovering economically. Uh, so. Um, the legislative branch uh, and the president are going to need to work together to address the country's uh, challenges in a in a positive way and uh, so this is a a time of of testing but uh, i would hope a time of affirmation too that our uh, not not that just we not that we can just survive an autocrat but that we can uh, work together effectively and with some measure of uh, partisan cooperation that's also a question mark but uh, it's what we got to work on trying to uh, address the country's needs and to do it in uh, in a way that is inclusive and um, you know it's not going to bring everybody along but we need to have some kind of balance of, of being inclusive taking everybody's views into account but at the end of the day being able to to take a vote and do the right thing by the country and uh, and, and move ahead
0: all right well congressman david price thank you so much for your time uh i am going to let you go back into your day and uh, i was Really a fantastic conversation.